welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. <clears throat> We're continuing in the book of Jude. Get near the end now. We're in the last section, basically. <laughs> this, this, this little epistle, this little epistle of Jude is basically a Christian's call to arms. Alright? It's called to take up arms. Let's get in the battle. Look at verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he's appealing to believers to contend for the faith against apostasy, against those that are defecting from the faith. Now, Jude wrote this a couple thousand years ago, but I want you to realize that apostasy has always been around. I mean, we can go back to the very beginning. Apostasy was present in heaven in the very throne room of God when the watchers decided to go their own way and departed from the council. It was present in the Garden of Eden when Yahweh brought man into His dwelling place and Adam and Eve decided to apostatize. It was present in Israel after God's greatest deliverance through the Exodus. So why would we expect the church somehow escape apostates. Well, in verse 4, Jude says, these certain people have crept in unnoticed. Speaking of the apostates, they have crept into the church. These apostates are identified in verses 8, 10, and 12 as these men. In verse 11, he refers to them as they. Then in verse 14 and 16, he calls them these. And then we have an abrupt change when we come to verse 17. But you... But it's a conjunction of contrast. In contrast to the apostates, all I've been saying, he says, but you. And Jude uses this contrast as he changes direction. Really shifting his focus from the denunciation of these apostates to loving exhortations to Yahweh's beloved saints. Now he's going to give us some instructions. The word here, beloved, the Greek, agapetos, Jews 60 times in the New Testament. The first nine times by God to Christ, His beloved Son. Where He says, Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. The other 51 uses in the New Testament are only of believers. When we believe, when we trust in Yeshua the Christ, we enter into union with Him. Ephesians 1.6 says, in Young's Living, to the praise of the glory of His grace in which He did make us accepted in the Beloved. That is an incredible concept, believers. We are accepted before God, not because of our performance, not because we're really nice, really good people, because we really worked hard, we go to church every Sunday, we tithe, we do all the things we're supposed to do. No, we are accepted In the Beloved. Because of Christ. And now we stand in Christ Yeshua. We share everything that He possesses, including the love of Yahweh the Father. We are accepted in Christ. He tells the Beloved, I want you to remember. He says, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the Apostles. The word remember is the first of five verbal imperatives 
that Jude is going to use from verse 17 down to 23. These imperatives are to challenge his readers to contend earnestly for the faith. The word remember here is from the Greek word mimnesko, which means to bring to mind, to think of again. It means to keep in mind for attention or consideration. Most of the New Testament uses convey the sense of recalling information from memory. I want you to remember this. And people, one of the best ways to recall to mind truth is to continually be reading the Bible. Over and over and over. Because by the time you start over again, you're going to forget a lot of things you already read. And as you go through, you're going to be reminded again. And the more you spend time in the Word of God, the more you will be reminded, the more these things will come to your mind. You know, Judah's dealt with admonitions from the Tanakh. The passages that have to do with Israel, that have to do with Cain and Balaam and Korah. He's also dealt with admonitions that are contained in one of the books that many of us are not too familiar with. The pseudepigraphal work of 1st Enoch. He quotes from that. But now he turns and reminds his readers of the apostolic writings. I want you to remember what the apostles had to say. So he's saying, rather than listening to the grumbling, rather than listening to the complaining and the arrogant speech of the false teachers, he asked the church to remember the words of the apostles. The word apostle here, apostolos, meaning one sent, a messenger, an agent. This is a technical word in the New Testament. It doesn't refer to just anyone who's sent. It can refer to that. You know, that's basically what it means, a sent one. But it's used here in reference to the twelve who are used by God to lay the foundation of the church. And one thing we have to understand about the apostles, these, these, again, it means sent one, here specifically sent from the Lord. There are no apostles today. People may be sent, but no one is being sent by the Lord. The New Testament definition of apostle of the Lord Yeshua was one who had seen the risen Messiah, according to Acts 1, 21 and 22. And he was appointed by him to carry the gospel. Now, since no one today has seen the risen Christ, no one has been a a witness of the resurrection, then there are no apostles today. It doesn't matter what people say. They can put that, you know, apostle so-and-so in front of their name, and they're not an apostle of the Lord. They haven't been sent by Christ. He was Christ's ambassador, and they spoke with authority. And they had the gifts of the apostles, and they could do some pretty incredible stuff. Well, the apostles repeatedly warned the teachers of these false teachers infiltrating the church and opposing the gospel. They were following their master, the Lord Yeshua, who himself warned against apostates. We see this in Matthew 7. The Lord says, beware of false prophets. Beware his pros echo, and it's it's in the present imperative, meaning it is a command never to let one's guard down, implying the church is to be continually on guard against these apostates. Beware of false prophecy, he says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, sheep's clothing here is not talking about a wolf that has a sheepskin over top of him. You've seen the cartoons, right? A wolf and he's got this sheep head and a little sheep skin over him. And, you know, that's, I think, what we think of when we read this. That comes from the cartoons and that's a cartoon image, all right? When the shepherd watched the flocks on the hillside, his garment was a sheep skin. 
worn with the sheep, the skin outside and the fleece on the inside. And the sheepskin mantle became the uniform of the prophets. Just as the Greek philosophers had worn a philosopher's robe, it was the mantle that the prophet could be distinguished from other men. He wore this mantle. But sometimes that clothing was worn by those who had no right to wear it. There were those who wore the prophet's clothing, and they were not prophets of God. They were false prophets. So he's seeing beware. Now, it's, the, it's not quite as obvious as the cartoon. All right, if you look close, you see the wolf there. That's not the idea. He's coming to you as a prophet. He's declaring to be a prophet, but he's not. And the apostles, they continually warned the believers against apostasy. Over and over, they warned about this. We see Paul warning the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. He says, and from among your own selves, from among the elders, insights and inside job people, these people have crept in unnoticed. From among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So these men crept in, and they crept in speaking here as present tense. They were continually speaking perverse things. This is diastrepho, meaning corrupted, distorted, crooked things. And the reason they were doing this was to draw away disciples after themselves. To lure people away, to attract them. This is the same language that Jude used. This is the same thing Jude is talking about. There's these perverse men. They're drawing people after themselves. He's warning them to be on the alert for this. In 1 Thessalonians, it warns those who come with flattering speech on a pretext of truth. In 2 Thessalonians, we are warned that there is coming a mystery of lawlessness, which is already at work. And then when we come to 1 Timothy 4.1, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So again, we have this idea of apostasy. They're falling away. 1 Timothy 6.20 and 21, he says, Paul is talking to Timothy. He says, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So they're following after this and they're going astray. Peter also warns about false teachers. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying the master who brought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Jude is saying that all the apostles have been telling them this. They've been preaching this over and over. The Lord preached it. The disciples preached it. It shouldn't be a surprise to them. They remember what the apostles had spoken. Now, before we leave this verse in Jude, I want you to see something here that... Let's go back to Jude 1 and see if you can remember this. Jude 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Yeshua the Christ, brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved of God, Father, and kept for Yeshua the Christ. Now, there are several men named Jude, Judas, or Judah in the New Testament, and two of them are apostles. 
There's Judas Iscariot and Judas not Iscariot. <laughs> All right. In Luke chapter six, in a list of the apostles, it says this Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, the King James has brother here instead of a son. And this has caused some to conclude that the Jude who wrote this epistle was the apostle Jude or Judas. The problem is that Jude is not including himself in this statement in Jude. He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. In other words, he's not including himself in that statement. But notice what Peter says. Peter says, commended of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So we have very similar language to that in Jude, yet Peter makes a point of including himself in the statement about apostles because Peter is an apostle. Jude is not. So this helps us support the conclusion that we had way back in verse 1 when we started this book that the Jude who wrote this epistle is the half-brother of our Lord, not Jude, the apostle. I think this verse in 17 just really strengthens that argument. Verse 18 says, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. That they were saying to you. It's an imperfect tense verb meaning many of them, the apostles, on many occasions were saying to you. They just they kept saying this in the last time there will be mockers. Now mockers is the Greek word emkites and it describes those who make fun of another. Us around here, I don't know what a mocker is. We should have any problem understanding that, right? They scorn, they scoff, they treat with contempt, they ridicule things of vital importance. Now Jude uses the word mocker, and Peter uses the same word mocker. In verse in 2 Peter 3, 3, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. Now the Greek word for mocker used here by Jude and Peter, that's the only two uses of this word in the New Testament. And I think it's a clear indication here that Jude is quoting from Peter. Now, since Peter's an apostle and Jude is not, that's one of the reasons some conclude that Peter wrote the second epistle before Jude. Jude is quoting from Peter, calling him an apostle. Now, what are these apostates mocking? What is it that they're talking about? Well, I think if we look at the next verse in Peter, we see what they're mocking. He says, in saying... Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued just as there was from the beginning of the creation. So Peter is making it clear that these individuals ridicule, they treat with contempt, the Bible's repeated promise of Yeshua's second coming. They keep asking, where's the promise of His coming? Now the root verb here to mock is used 13 times in the New Testament. 11 of them refer to mockings of our Lord. The people mocking Him. It's therefore a little surprise that evil men, if they mocked Him continually, that they'd mock the prophetic promise of a second coming. Because they mocked Him when He was here. They mock His promise. Now, think with me for a little bit. Just a minute. You're allowed to do that in Christianity. You're allowed to think. Okay? So think with me for a minute. Jude wrote this epistle... In A.D. 67. You know, right, roughly around there. And here we got mockers saying, where is the promise? They're in A.D. 67. Where's this promise of His coming? Well, why are they saying that? It's because they knew that Christ had predicted 
He had said that his coming would be in that generation. We're familiar with Matthew 24, 36. Truly I say unto you, this generation, the one he's talking to, will not pass away until all these things take place. Now in Jude's day, that generation was coming to a close. And the second coming still hadn't happened. So they're looking around saying, where's his promise? Their generation was about over. And so it caused them to mock the prophecy that he would return to that first century generation. Do you think it's strange that people in Jude's day, around AD 67, are mockingly saying, where's the promise of his coming? And yet, 2,000 years later, most Christians are still saying, he's coming soon. Well, if they mocked in AD 67, they certainly have reason to be mocking 2,000 years later. I mean, if he said, I'm coming in this generation, and he's still not here, then, yeah, I think there's reason to mock. But listen, we don't have mockers today. We have people today assuring us that it's soon. He's coming soon. And you wonder, you know, they don't need to study theology. They need a dictionary to understand what the word soon means. Okay? It's like they, again, Christians just quit thinking. He said he was coming soon 2,000 years ago. And less than 40 years after he said he was coming soon, we have people mocking, saying, where is it? Where's this coming? And yet we're 2,000 years past that, and people are like, yep, he's coming soon. You remember the hymn, Coming Again? I always had a problem with that hymn. Maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, and maybe soon. Maybe soon? I had a problem with that when I was a futurist. It seems like they're questioning the words of the Lord. The Bible says He is coming soon. And they say, maybe soon. Maybe not soon. We're not really sure. Well, Jude says, in the last time there will be mockers. And the words last time here are eschatos chronos. The word eschatos means farthest, final, end, last, end. And chronos, which we get our word chronology, it has to do with time on a clock or a calendar. Using these same words, eschatos chronos, Peter, speaking of Christ, says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Okay, what does that tell us? That in Peter's generation, they were in the last days, the last times. Because he says that. He said Christ has appeared in the last times. Well, the writer of Hebrews confirms that. He says God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, speaking of the Tanakh, the Old Testament promises, the Old Covenant promises, He says in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. So the Son is speaking in the last days, so the days that Yeshua was here on the earth were the last days. Jude is speaking about the last days. In the last days, there will be mockers. Now, referring to the last days leads us into some a very technical phrase here. In the last time is a very specific expression referring to the period from Messiah's first coming till His second coming. The last days began when God began to speak through His Son... According to Peter, according to the writer of Hebrews, the last days began when the Son came, 
Most Christians agree with that. Most Christians also agree that the last days end at the return of Christ. And since they believe Christ has not yet returned, they think we're still living in the last days. And that's where the problem comes. How many last days do you have? How do you have last days? This is a simple thing, I I think, to deal with. But again, most Christianity doesn't like to think. They just like to feel. The last day, Israel lasted about 1,600 years from the time of its inception to the time it was destroyed in AD 70. How can last days of something last longer than the thing itself lasted? How can you have last days lasting 2,000 years when Israel itself only lasted 1,600 years? How can those be last days? I think the Bible is very clear. We are not living in the last days. Listen, despite what everybody's telling you, and everybody's on this bandwagon, people, everything that happens, it's a sign of the times. We're living in the last days. You know, Hagee had so many people riled up with his blood moons nonsense. And guess what? It's over. It's come and gone. And we're here we are. We're still waiting. And then you got, you know, the Shemitah book and all, you know, Jonathan Kahn and all his nonsense. Financial collapse is going to happen and they all get dates. You know what? I'm making a prediction and a prophecy right now. Okay, you ready? I predict these guys will keep going, keep writing books and keep naming dates. How many, you know, I saw something that was kind of funny. It says, uh, uh, end time events survived and it had listed like, Nine or ten end time events that had come and gone and were still around. How many time, how many people have predicted the end is near? It sells books. It gets people excited. But it's not true, people. And that's the thing. If we got into the scriptures and really saw what the scriptures said and read them for what they are, we're not living in the last days. In order to understand the term last days, look, look at how the phrase was originally used in the Hebrew scriptures. The Bible's first use of the phrase last days is found in Genesis. Wow, the first book of the Bible. In chapter 49. Now, there's something called the law of first mention. Have you ever heard that? The law of first mention. It's a principle of interpretation when you're interpreting scripture that states the first mention or the first occurrence of a subject in the scripture establishes a pattern. This is how we're to understand that. This is how we're to understand the term. In the first term, last days, we find in Genesis 49.1. The complete Jewish Bible says, Then Yaakov called for his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the Aharit Hamin. Now, the Aharit Hamin is the Hebrew for last days. Now, consider carefully to whom the phrase last days is primarily being addressed. It's Jacob is talking to his sons, the twelve tribes of Israel, and he pronounces the general evil that's going to come upon them. Alright? So clearly Israel's the subject of the last days. I think if you just understand that, the last days concern Israel. That's crucial to understanding in the last days. Here's why it's so important. The church has no last days. What? No, the church doesn't have an eschatology. New Testament eschatology is Israel's eschatology because there's no last days for the church. The church has received an everlasting covenant. There's no end to it. 
There's not another covenant coming that would end this one. See, the old covenant ended when the new covenant was consummated. The Lord promised back in Jeremiah, I will bring a new covenant. Because this old one's not working too well. Because man, it just corrupt. They just can't seem to get it. I'm going to bring a new covenant. And I'm going to write my laws on their hearts. And this is critical to understanding in the last days. We've got to understand that. And that will save us from people like Hagee and all those other people that everything that comes up is a last days thing. Every happening is the last days. I don't know how many people got sucked into Hagee's thing. How many people spent money on his books and you know prepared for the end and did foolish things. You know, I remember reading way back, you know, in the day when I first became a Christian, people, you know, quitting their jobs, running up credit card debt. You know, hey, I'm getting raptured out of here anyway. He'll leave the debt for somebody else. Surprise, surprise. You got to pay for it. Okay. People quit their jobs, quit their jobs because he was coming. They're so certain. And it's simply a misunderstanding of scripture. You're not reading it in context. Look at Numbers 24, 13. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could do nothing contrary to the commandment of Yahweh, either good or bad. And now, behold, I'm going to my people, come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the last days. Now, the complete Jewish Bible here has Aharit Hayamim, last days. King James has the latter days. Young's Living says in the latter end of the days. Here again, we see a vision concerning the Jews. It was concerning what would happen to Israel. That is your people. He's talking about Israel, your people in the last days. Moses confirms that the last days of national Israel would be characterized by devastation and their ultimate scattering in Deuteronomy 31, 29. But I know that after my death, you will act corruptly. And you will turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger with the works of your hands. So Moses says evil is going to befall you. Israel, speaking of Israel, Moses was leading the children of Israel. There's no reference to Gentiles being the subject of last days. It's about Israel. It's about Old Covenant coming to an end. Daniel 10.14 Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. The phrase your people is referring to Israel. Israel is Daniel's people. And he says, For the vision pertains to days yet future. The time of this writing was about 536 B.C. He says the vision will happen to Israel in the latter days. It's a ways off. It's a long ways off. Okay? Well, if it's only about 500 years, if 500 years is a long ways off, how's 2,000 years soon? So in Daniel's time, the last days were a ways off. Look at Joel 2. I think people are familiar with Joel because of Acts. It will come about after this that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. All right, Peter stands up at Pentecost, which is the birth of the church. The new covenant is coming into being. Peter stands up and taking his stand with the eleven, he raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all living in Jerusalem. Who's he talking to? Judea and Jerusalem. Jews, okay? Let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this 
is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now what Peter is saying here, what you see happening, Pentecost, the audio visual experience of Pentecost, what you see is what Joel said. This is what was spoken about Joel. Okay, Joel predicted this. You're seeing it. See, Hagee takes Joel and Acts and says, these are both predictions of the future. No, Acts is saying this is the fulfillment of what Joel said. We're seeing the fulfillment here. He says, and it shall be in the last days, quoting from Joel. God says that I'll pour forth my spirit and all my... So what Peter is saying at Pentecost, this is what Joel talked about. We are in the last days. I think it's easy to establish when the last days began, people. Okay, we see that over and over throughout the scripture. All right, and again, he's talking to those men of Judea and Jerusalem. He said this in the first century. So Peter explicitly said, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. And then he explains what the multitude of Jews were experiencing at that time was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. He's telling first century Jews, you're in the last days. And then he goes on to describe what's going to take place. He says the sun's going to be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of Yahweh shall come. Now he's talking about a 40 year event here. He starts out, here's how it's going to begin with the prophecy and all this stuff beginning in the last days. Then it's going to end with destruction here. Now notice how what he says here corresponds to what Yeshua said in Matthew 24. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. Yeshua spoke these words in answer to the disciples' question as to when the end would come. So the disciples said, well, when's this going to happen? You know, he shows them the temple. All these things are going to be destroyed. When? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And he goes on to tell them. And he says, it's going to happen in this generation. And guess what? The temple was destroyed just by coincidence in that generation. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was sacked. Judaism ended that day, people. They have not offered a sacrifice since that day. Now you say, well, Judaism's still going on. Not biblical Judaism. They still have feast. They still do a lot of stuff, but none of it resembles Scripture. You know why? Because they're not slaughtering animals anymore. And without sacrifices, you got no Judaism. And without a priesthood, you got no Judaism. How do you not have a priest? How can you have a priesthood today? You say, well, anybody could just be a priest. Know what happened in the book of Ezra when people came up to be priests. They said, we couldn't find your registry of your genealogy. Therefore, you're out. No papers. Exactly. If there's not a list of your genealogical record, you can't be a priest. And in AD 70, everything was destroyed. No one knows who's from what line. That ended it, people. Judaism ended once and forever. Biblical Judaism in AD 70. You got stuff going on today. You have a religion today called Judaism. has nothing to do with the Bible. Those two don't resemble one another in any way, shape, or form. So the age that was ending was the Jewish age. It would end with the destruction of the temple. That's the end of the Old Covenant. I mean, that temple was the center. That was God's dwelling place among Jerusalem. And He said, I'm done with this people. We're shutting this whole thing down. We're starting something new. A new covenant. It was not the last days of planet Earth. It was not the last days of the world. And you can pick that up if you're reading the King James Bible. It sounds like the world is going to end. It's not what it's saying. He's talking about the last days, the end of Judaism, the Old Covenant. And the disciples knew that the fall of the temple meant the end of the Old Covenant. That's it. We have no temple, we got no Old Covenant. And it meant the inauguration of the new. Now, 
The writer of Hebrews said in around AD 65, the writer of Hebrews writing around the same time Peter, Jude wrote this, he says this, For yet a very little while, and he who is coming will come and will not delay. Now the Greek here is very expressive. It's very emphatic. The author uses a word which signifies a little while. And then for further emphasis, he added a participle meaning very. And this still further is intensified by repeating it. And literally it reads like this. For yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come will come. In 2,000 years. Can anybody make that last that long? I mean, really. The idea which the author wants to convey is evidently that the time of the coming of Christ, which would be a deliverance of them for them trials, is not a long way off, people. Okay? It's soon. It's a reference without a doubt to the second coming. And if this is a reference to the second coming, and if he has not yet come yet, as most of the church believes, if he hasn't come, then what did it mean to the people whom it was written? What did it mean to the Hebrew believers that he wrote this to? Nothing. Nothing. He's writing to them and he says, in a yet a very, very little while, he shall come and will, because it's only a few years until the coming of Christ when he writes this. If he hasn't come in 2,000 years, this meant nothing to them. If the Lord didn't return in the first century, this would have meant nothing to them. Matter of fact, it's deceptive to them because it's promising a deliverance that never came. That's kind of sad, isn't it? Now, God inspired the author of Hebrews to write, again, around 65, to the first century saints, for yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come, will come. How could he have made it clear that the second coming of Christ was going to be soon? How could he have possibly made that clear? But yet, how do we, so many people miss that today? They're still looking. Oh, he's coming soon. Wait a second. Can soon be soon forever? Does soon not even have a meaning? What does it mean? See, most Christians would say the Lord has not yet returned. You know what that does? If you say the Lord has not returned, you make the writer of Hebrews a false prophet. He's a false prophet. But the problem is, this is the real problem. It wasn't just the writer of Hebrews who said that Yeshua was coming in the first century. Yeshua taught this. (laughs) So guess what? You make Yeshua. A false prophet. Look at Matthew 16, 27, 28. These are the verses that really started this all off for me. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will repay every man according to the deeds. Truly I say unto you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, the word come here is the Greek word mellow. Which literally means is about to come. So he's saying the Son of Man is about to come. It prim- it's used primarily to indicate the nearness of an event. Now some have tried to water this down and say it simply means a certainty. He's really going to come, but that's a mistake because the original Greek connotation is far more than fact related. It's a sense of proximity. And he says there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death. So Yeshua is speaking to his disciples. And he says that some of them are still going to be alive when he returned in the second coming. Was he wrong? 
Most believers today would have to say he was wrong, right? Now, if Yeshua was wrong, then according to Deuteronomy 18, he's a false prophet. Yeshua is a false prophet. Deuteronomy 18.22 says, When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which Yahweh has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, he's a false prophet. So, what do we do with that? If Yeshua was a false prophet, guess what? Then we're all dead in our sins and we're on our way to a Christless eternity. If God does not keep the when part of the promise, has He kept the promise? No. Because He didn't just say He's coming. He told us when He's coming. So the when is part of the promise. He's got to keep the time as well as the promise. Listen, the inspiration of Scripture demands complete fulfillment of every aspect of the promise. But if Yeshua is Lord... Then what he said was true, and he returned in the second coming before all of the disciples he was speaking to had died. Now, if you believe the Bible's inspired, if it's in the inerrant word of the living God, then this passage gives a clear either-or when determining its fulfillment. See, either Christ has fulfilled this passage, and his coming has occurred, or else some of the initial audience is still alive. There's no escaping the language used here, all right? Anybody familiar with logic knows when an if statement is encountered, it indicates a split passageway in which one and only one of the results can be followed. In this case, if Christ has not come, then some of the audience must still be alive physically. And conversely, if the entire audience has physically died, then Christ had to have already come. There's no way around that. And I've talked to people who said they believe there's some disciples still alive out there. Because they can't accept the fact that Christ came. And if this was the only passage we were dealing with, well, I could understand that, but there's a whole lot of other passages dealing with the same thing. They're saying, oh yeah, I still believe there's disciples out there. Really? 2,000 year old guys walking around. That's easier for you to believe than the fact that Christ came? See, if Christ was true to His Word, and there's really no alternative here, then there can be no splitting of the pieces and parts and the fulfillment. It's all or nothing. Either He came... Just like he promised or he didn't. Alright, back to Jude. At the end of verse 18, he writes this, following after their own ungodly lust. This is the same phrase that appears in 2 Peter 3.3 and in Jude 1.16. It explains why the apostates deny God's truth. They don't want to be accountable to the Word of God. They don't want to have to live in a certain way, so they just deny it. The word ungodly is a translation from the Greek word asabia, and it means ungodliness, unspiritualness, wickedness. Following their own ungodly lust. The word lust here is epithumia. Epithumia is a neutral term. It denotes the presence of a strong desire or impulse. It's a passionate craving towards something. And like I said, it's neutral. You have to determine if it's good or bad by the context. Now, when Jude says ungodly lust, I think that's a hint to what he's talking about, okay? We got a little hint here. These are, this is, there's lust. Their drivings are not something spiritual. They're ungodly. They're perverted. They're unrestrained. He goes on in verse 19 to say, these are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. One more time, Jude says these, referring to these apostates. The verb divisions here, apadiorizo, it means to disjoin, to separate. 
See, apostates always cause division in the churches because they're always bringing in error. And you got truth and error, you got conflict. What does the Bible say about those who cause division? Well, in Romans 16, it says, Now I urge you, brethren. Notice the similarity here again to Jude. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Contrary to the teaching you learned from the apostles, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Yeshua, the Christ, but of their own appetites, their own lusts. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They cause dissensions. This is the Greek word, dehostasia, it means divisions. This word is used in Galatians 5.20 of one of the deeds of the flesh. Paul's saying, take note of those who divide God's people. So it's clear from this command that Paul's concerned about unity. He wants to promote unity in the church. And the apostates are causing division in the church. Now let me just say here that one of the greatest challenges to the quest of unity is deciding what belongs in the essential body of doctrine. You know, I think we're too prone to divide over everything. Oh, you don't like the car or the wall? Then we're not fellowshipping with you anymore, okay? I mean, and, and that's silly, but the church has got to that point. I mean, we have to stick to the fundamentals. There's some things worth dividing over. There's others that aren't. There are issues of, you know, you have a difference of opinion. What exactly is it we divide over? And what is it that we agree to disagree on? Well, for me, some of the issues that we divide over, one of them is salvation by faith alone. I'm going to divide over that. It's a stand for me I'm going to take. It's a hill I'm going to die on. Because if you come along with a salvation that's not by faith alone, you're saying, well, you have to work. You have to do this. You have to perform that. You have to do this ritual. You have to go to this certain place. Then you are promoting a work salvation. And Paul told the Galatians, if if me or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, let him be anathema. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That's worth standing. That's a hill we want to die on. Another issue for me is the deity of Yeshua. Alright, people say, oh, I don't know. Listen, if you just understand the Bible, you gotta understand He's God. He says it over and over and over. It's alluded to throughout all the Old Covenant. You know, He quotes those same passages and says, that's me. There's no doubt there. Yeshua is Yahweh. He's the second Yahweh of the Tanakh. Another issue for me is the inspiration of Scripture. Because people, if the Bible's not inspired, then none of what we have to say matters. And you know, I have no point to stand on because the Bible's not inspired. How do I know Yeshua is the Christ? How do I know salvation is by faith alone? So we've got to have the inspiration of Scriptures. And one other I'd pick to be in my top list <laughs> would be the depravity of man. Because if man's not depraved, he doesn't need a Savior. So that would be one of my top. Those are my top four, okay? And, and listen, you know, the, the, in the days gone by, I would divide over a lot of things. I divided over eschatology at one point. I really did. And I thought, boy, I wouldn't even fellowship with myself right now, you know? I'd be divided from myself, you know? And I thought that was a big issue. And I was pre-millennial, and I was pre-tribulation, pre-everything, you know? And uh, when I came to the truth, it was a big shock and realized, boy, if you know you're that wrong on something that important, then, you know, you got to be a little bit, have a little flexibility with others who aren't quite, you know. And I have people write me all the time, do you think futurists are saved? I'm like, why? They can, eschatology is not part of the gospel. 
you know, show me in the Bible where, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, have your eschatology straight, and you must be saved. No, it's not, it doesn't say that. We don't have to add that to things, you know, but there are people who say we're not saved because we believe the way we do, but they're putting eschatology as part of the gospel. I just, it's ridiculous, people. But we have to have some things we're going to, you know, we got to stand on some hills, people, but we have to have tolerance in other areas. We just have to. He says these people are worldly minded. They're devoid of the spirit. Worldly mind is probably one of the worst translations you could come up here. The word is sukakos, and it means soulish or natural. They're natural men. I mean, in other words, there's nothing spiritual. They're just natural men. They're like men. They, they don't have the spirit of God. Refers to individuals that are only interested in this life. They're interested, they're not interested in all the things of God or His Spirit. To the Greek, it was the idea that they were physical. Everything about them was suke. The word sukakos is used five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it three times in 1 Corinthians. I think we're familiar with this one. 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says, but a natural man. Okay, he's just natural. He's just, he hasn't been born again. He doesn't have the Spirit of God. He's a natural man. He doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? That's foolish to him. What, someone died on the cross and saved me of my sin? I don't need, what a save from what? He cannot, watch, not he will not, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And he doesn't have anything to appraise them with because he's just plain natural. And Jude says, they're devoid of the Spirit. And that's really a definition of sukkakos. That's what sukkakos is. Devoid of the Spirit. And that's the test of a Christian. Paul said this, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Talking to believers. Believers, you're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. If a person doesn't have the Spirit, they're not a Christian. And again, that's how Jude defines sukkakos. He says, they're worldly-minded. They're devoid of the Spirit. There's no Spirit there. So these apostates that Jude's talking about, they're not believers. They're just people who get into the church, but they're in the church. Okay, they're not people standing outside. They come inside the church. They teach things. They mock. Listen, people, we have so many people in the church teaching things that are so far from the truth. That's why the church is messed up as it is today, which I believe is why the country is messed up the way it is today. Because I believe when the church goes astray, the Lord judges the nation. And the church has lost its voice today because the church is so interested in health and wealth and the top preachers making the most money. Huge, the largest churches are the people preaching the health wealth gospel. It's attractive, people. Do you want to be healthy? Do you want to be wealthy? Just come to this church. And then send in your seed money, you know, give me some money. And because the pastor's healthy and wealthy. I mean, he's driving a, a Mercedes Benz, the low end, you know, that a Mercedes Benz would be low end for a pastor, you know. He's got this huge mansion, he's got all this money. Yeah, jets that fly around the country. They got all this stuff. And they're coming to you and say, you gotta give. Be like, what? <laughs> Seems like you got enough now, don't you? But see, they tell you it's seed money. And so when you give to them, guess what happens? God blesses you. And it works for those at the top of the pyramid. But it doesn't work from those down. Because they, you know, they're giving their money hoping to get something. Ah, oh, people, it's so sad. It's so sad. But that's what's going on in our country. That's the largest churches. 
And we're just, you know, we're into everything but the truth. Everything but the truth. You know, let me tell you, let me challenge you with this. Try to find a church that teaches the Bible. Try. I mean, it's not, you know, people leave here and they're like, this is crazy. I can't find a church that even talks about the Bible. A lot of times they'll quote something in the midst of their sermon. But it's all, you know, the church has become all about you because that's what you want. You know, people come in and they say, I want to feel good. I want something to help my felt needs. You know, I have this problem, so I want to address my problem. Okay, so we'll address your problem. What about the rest of the people? If they don't have your same problem, then they're feeling left out. You know, listen, what the church is to be doing is teaching people, giving people the knowledge of God. And when you have the knowledge of God, your problems seem will evaporate. They'll disappear when you put them in perspective to who the Lord is. And I said, I think our mission is to know him and make him known. But the church is not making him known today. You know, the church has a seminar on your finances. We want to help, to help you out on how to have finances. Of course, they want to teach financial courses. What is the number one thing they're going to teach in that financial course? Uh, tithing. tithing. <laughs> I wonder who's benefiting from that, you know, course. We want to help you with your finances. And the way you can do better, give to us. <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, if it wasn't so sickening, it would be funny. But it is. It's, it's sad, people. Because it's a bondage thing. And the church is, is is bankrupt when it comes to the knowledge of God. And that's where we need to be. That's what we need to know. We need to know Him and make Him known. As we know Him, as we walk with Him. It doesn't matter what's happening around. Paul was in the worst circumstances possible. Did it bother him? No! I mean, can you imagine being beat and stuck in an inner dungeon and then say, look at the guy next to you and say, let's sing. What? So let's sing? I want to moan, I want to complain, I want to murmur. I was preaching the Word of God. Why am I in a dungeon? Why am I suffering? No, Paul said, let's sing. God is God. He's worthy of our praise. Believers, we do well to heed the words of Jude and to always be earnestly contending for the faith because there will always be apostates. They're going to seek to lead us astray. They're going to lead to seek to lead us astray from the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. And they can get get us off of God and onto ourselves the church is null and void. If it's all about you, there's no point. Because it's all about Him. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Amen. Father, I pray that You would strengthen us, Lord. Yeah. May our hearts desire, may the passion of our heart be to know You yeah. and make You known, Lord. May that be our calling. May that be our mission, Father. To know you in an intimate way that we can share you with others. Share your goodness. Share your grace, your love. Father, strengthen us. We live in a world, we live in a country, Lord, that is apostate. It is turned from the Word of God so far away. Give us the strength, Lord, to be a light in the midst of the darkness. To call people back to a faith in you, Lord. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for everything, Lord, that you have provided for us. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.